read it together first and spend some time enjoying it. Psalms 29. This is the word of God to us. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The wor- and worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And all in his temple cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Heavenly Father, as every chapter in this book of Psalms teaches us in some way to love your word and be pointed and take refuge in your son, I pray that you would do that again this morning. Help us to love your word and the beauty of the text that you've preserved for thousands of years, that we might hear your voice in this text this morning. And we pray that this text would not just be a matter of, that was kind of cool, but that this would be a text that would point us to Jesus Christ, to coming to know him in faith as our Savior and walking with him faithfully all of our lives until we get to see him enthroned as king in a new heavens and a new earth, our sure and certain future. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. June 3rd, 1980, just a couple of years ago, June 3rd, 1980, there was a supercell thunderstorm that was slowly making its way across the state of Nebraska at a glacial, state, uh, glacial speed of 8 miles an hour. Right? So that's not very fast. You can do a lot of damage going that slow. And it parked itself over the city of Grand Island, Nebraska, which is almost the same size as Bloomington. It's a comparable town. And there it stayed, and something happened that's actually still talked about in the field of meteorology and studied by weather nerds even today. Starting at about 9 p.m. that night, the storm did something that no one's ever seen before or since. Tornado sirens started going off, and tornadoes started coming down out of that supercell. And in a little over three hours, seven different tornadoes came down in and around and through the city of Grand Island, Nebraska. One of them was even an F4 that had winds of over 250 miles an hour that went right down Locust, which is one of the main drags in town, just plowed its way right down through the middle of town. 
Most of them, and this is what made it unique, most of them weren't even normal tornadoes in that they didn't go in straight lines because the storm wasn't moving, so almost all of them swirled around this way and crossed their own paths and went in circles and all kinds of weird shapes. So you actually had no, there were more than one on the ground almost all the time, and you had no idea where they were going to go next. The F4 tornado actually only traveled one mile in a linear line, like from where, as a crow flies, but it went six miles like this all the way through the middle of town destroying all kinds of things. A good friend of mine, a former co-worker, remembers that night very well because he lived in Grand Island on June 3rd, 1980, and he heard the sirens sounding from his house, and he did something similar to what most good Nebraskans do. I don't know if you know what a tornado siren means in Nebraska. It means go out on the front porch and see what you can see, right? Or better, if you have a ladder, go up on your roof because you have a better view from there to watch whatever's coming, right? That's what, oh, I'm serious. You think I'm kidding. That's what a tornado siren means in Nebraska. Let's go outside and see what's happening. Well, he didn't quite do that. He did a little bit better than most Nebraskans. He just went out to his garage to do some work. And he had the door like halfway open to keep the rain out, but to let the air in. And so he's just doing some woodwork in his garage and cleaning things up until he sees one of his trash cans at the edge of the garage start to shake and then go, and something sucks it down his driveway. And he's like, that's kind of odd. And then he watches his second garage, garbage can start to shake and slide and go, boom, down the, and it disappears. And he thought to himself, this might be a good time to go to the basement. I wonder what's sucking my, garage, my garbage cans away. And he went down to the basement with his family, none too soon. Last week, as we covered Psalms 29, we heard just one cry. Right? David was in trouble. David was in a life or death situation. And he cries out to God, toward God's temple, toward God's sanctuary for help. Because he doesn't want to be dragged off with the wicked. He wants to be delivered. And that's what happens in the psalm. But remember, there was that blank space between verses 5 and 6. We don't know. What, ha- what made the difference between David saying, I'm doomed, I need your help, and David saying, blessed be the Lord, he's heard my cry. Well, the psalm, psalm 28 didn't tell us. I think it's teaching us how to live life, waiting for that answer, knowing it will come, and continuing to bless the Lord, even if we're still in the situation of the first half of the psalm, right? And that's where we ended last week. David hasn't actually seen the answer yet. What happens between verses 5 and 6 that changes everything? And then we turn the page to Psalms 29, the very next psalm, and the tornado sirens start going off. Because there's a supercell thunderstorm that's boiling its way across the promised land now. It's churning slowly down from north to south across the land of God. But it's not an ordinary storm. It's way worse than one that spawns seven tornadoes. The storm that's coming is the Lord God himself. He's coming in his glory and his strength. And the storm is being driven by his very voice, by his speech. And so the tornado sirens are coming off. Because God's coming in a storm. What is he doing? What's going to happen? In the Grand Island tornadoes in 1980, many homes, many businesses were destroyed. Five people died. Hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. Hundreds of people injured. My friend, who watched his garbage cans go down his driveway, he and his family survived because they found shelter fast enough. They got down to the basement, and they all lived, even though the tornado plowed through their neighborhood and made a huge mess. They were still alive. If he'd stayed in his garage, he could have easily have been part of that death toll. Storms like that, they're powerful, and they're terrifying if you don't have shelter. 
But if you know where your shelter is, you'll be saved from the storm. One of the five people who died in the Grand Island tornadoes that night, it was, she was, it was a woman, and her response to hearing the sirens go off, I can't remember her name, her response to hearing the sirens go off and having multiple tornadoes on the ground going nobody knew which way, was to get in her car and try to drive home. It's like, I'm going to find shelter with my family. She wasn't home, so I'm going to go drive across town. Her car got picked up, and she died. She needed to have found shelter sooner than she did. And if he did the warning when it started, instead of, oh, the warning, I've got some time left, I can get there. She couldn't. She didn't make it. One thing I wonder about Psalms 29 this poem about God, this prayer about God, is why is Psalms 29 written as a ferocious storm? That's an interesting way to portray what God is doing. And it's supposed to make us ask also, I think, why is there a storm psalm following home psalms? Remember Psalms 26 that we covered last year and Psalms 27 and 28? These are home, dwelling, I want to be with God kind of psalms. They're temple psalms. So why do we hear some, I want just one thing, I want to be with the Lord where he is and see the beauty of his presence, and we hear this three times, and then we hit this thunderstorm psalm. Why is it that we're hearing in 28, don't sweep me away with the wicked, right? Be my rock and my shelter. Why is it we're hearing in 27, you're my shield, you're my refuge, and then we see a storm come in 29. How do these psalms go together? Right? And the only way we can answer that question is by being storm chasers. You've got to be storm chasers this morning. Does that sound like fun? Some of us think that would be fun. My wife would be a storm chaser if I let her. I think she thinks that would be tremendously entertaining to follow tornadoes around. But I don't think that sounds like fun. I'm not a normal Nebraskan, and I do not get on my roof when I hear the tornado sirens go off. But we get to be storm chasers in Psalms 29. We're going to follow the track of the storm as it's plowing its way through the promised land. We're going to see what it is God is up to and what it is his voice is doing as he's working his way north to south down the length of the promised land. Because Psalms 29 intends to shape us as a text and as a prayer about the storm. Getting to know who God is and what he asks of us. So let's look at it. Let's hear the call first, right? These are the tornado sirens that are starting to go off at the beginning of the psalm, the first couple of verses. After verse 0, which is a psalm of David, there are four lines that go together. If you look down at your text, and the first word in each line, look at the first word in each line of verses 1 and 2. What are those first words? Ascribe, 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 worship. See that? Ascribe, 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 Worship. In the days before fun fonts and bolds and italics and other ways to emphasize things in written text, do you know how, how does the biblical text do that? How does Hebrew poetry emphasize things it wants you to notice? Well, one way is it repeats them over and over and over again. So we see a repetition. It wants you to notice. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe worship. That's the tornado sirens going off. So we see the repeating, but we can also look at the rhyming. Right? Hebrew poetry rhymes. It just doesn't rhyme like English poetry. English poetry rhymes by sound. Right? There once was a young man from Quebec who was buried in snow up to his neck. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? That's, that's good English poetry right there, at least as far as I'm concerned. Don't frown at me. Uh, where was I? Good English poetry with that limerick about the boy from Quebec. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme that way. Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas, not sounds. It rhymes concepts. 
not vocalizations. So look at the rhymes through the text. Look at each line that follows the ascribe. Ascribe heavenly beings. Ascribe glory and strength. Ascribe glory to his name. Ascribe or worship in the splendor of God's holiness. Right, and look at how these rhyme and advance and intensify as they go through the four lines here. We begin with the heavenly beings. This is who David's talking to. He's telling the angels to come and worship. David's prayer is aimed at praise in heaven, starting. That's where the tornado sirens start to go off and the praise starts to come. David's prayer is aimed at beginning praise in heaven, then it goes on to glory and strength. This is going to be praise about God's honor, his glory, his reputation, God's strength, his power, what he's able to do. And then there's the glory to his name. That's the next phrase. It's a little shorter, but it actually has more meaning in it because it refers us back to the name of, the, of God. We think we covered this a couple of weeks ago. The five verbs that go with God's name as they're revealed in Exodus. I am the God who hears. I am the God who sees. I remember, I know, and I deliver. Right? I hear my people when they cry out. I see their suffering and their bondage. I remember, I've promised them that they are mine in covenant. I'm going to come down and know what their lives are, what their suffering is. I'm going to walk in their shoes and I'm going to deliver them from the land of death to the place of life by the blood of the lamb and the death of the firstborn son. All of that is summed up in what God's name means. Give glory to his name. And then he finally says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So whatever's coming next relates to God's purity his holiness, his set-apartness, his uniqueness, his I am the Lord, and there's nobody in second place here. So ascribe, 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 worship. Each line intensifying the worship scene in heaven. But that's not the only thing repeated, right? Did you notice that right after ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, worship the Lord— that the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, his proper name. It's in all capital letters, and when you see that in English, that's God's proper name with those five verbs that go with him. I am, I am the God. I am him who hears, sees, remembers, knows, and delivers. And this is going to be a psalm about him. Psalms 26, 27, and 28 were about the psalmist. And the psalm, mainly the psalmist longing for home and wanting to be where God is and wanting to be among God's people and wanting to be worshiping forever. That was the, the three psalms before this. Now we're changing focus. This psalm is about the Lord. And it sounds a lot like our confessional text, if you noticed when we read it, right? Psalms 18 is a sister psalm to Psalms 29. They're both talking about similar things. So that's what we hear. We hear the beginning of the tornado sirens. We hear the storm is coming. The holy God of Israel is bearing down on the land. So David starts off with, ascribe, 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 worship. It's time to worship because God is coming. And now we get a storm chase into the heart of the storm, right? Now the rain is blinding and the hail is coming down and we're in that little car that theoretically weighs enough it can't be picked up. And we're going to follow the storm into its heart in verses 3 through 9. Now, I want you to look for a couple of things as we do this. We're going to read the text one more time. Look for what we've seen at the beginning of the psalm. Look for something or some things that are repeating throughout the storm. And if you like counting, feel free to count the repetitions. And look for rhymes, things that are rhyming between the lines, ideas that are being repeated as we read. We're going to read it together, verses 3 through 9. One more time, listen for repetitions and rhymes. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. 
the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And all in his temple cry glory. What was the main thing that was repeated through the whole heart of the storm? It was what? The voice of the Lord. How many times did you count? How many times does it repeat? Seven. What an amazing coincidence that it happens to be the number seven, right? Modeled after the Grand Island tornadoes, of which there were seven. No? No, the number seven in the Bible symbolizes wholeness, completeness, finished work. That's what this, is. this storm is going to do what God set out to do with it, and it will be finished when he's done. Seven times the voice of the Lord repeats. It's the perfect storm, if you don't mind another movie analogy. So what about the rhyming that's going on? What about the rhyming that's going on through the psalm? I think it's harder to see in this particular psalm, some of the rhymes. I think they're a little bit obscure sometimes. So I switched to looking at its rhythm. You can also look at rhythm in poetry. In English, poetry tends to have kind of a cadence, a da-dun-da-dun-da-dun-da-dun, right? There once was a young man from Quebec who was buried in snow to his neck, right? There's a cadence to that. Hebrew poetry has rhythm too, but you can't see it in English because it's based on the number of words in the lines. But you can see it at least enough to see the difference in the lengths of the lines when they're, when they're starkly different. Does that make sense? So look at, look at the, the length or the rhythm of the poetry. Are there lines that are longer than others? If voice of the Lord is, is the beginning of each line of poetry, which ones are biggest? Verse, the first verse in verse 3 is a little bit longer, isn't it? Then a couple of really short ones in verse 4. Then verse 5 is really long. Verses 7, 6... Verses 5 and 6 are really long. Verse 7 and 8 are kind of medium, and verse 9 is longer again. So we have three lines in the poem that have a different rhythm than the rest of it. The first, the middle, and the last. So I think that's where we want to focus the rest of our time. And that doesn't mean the other lines in between aren't important. They are. It's just we only have so much time in the sermon, and the storm will only last so long. So we need to get into the middle of the storm and chase it down before it's gone. And so the best way we can do that is following the author himself saying, look at the first line, look at the middle line, look at the last line. There's a lot going on there. So I want, I want to show us two things. And the first thing I want us to notice about this rhythm is the beauty and the artistry of the poem itself. Sometimes it's just good to look at the beauty of the way the Word of God is made. So I want you to think about, what does a thunderstorm do? This is a picture of a storm rolling down the promised land. And Hebrew poetry loves this kind of thing, right? It loves making its poems sound like what it's describing. And it's doing that here. When, when you hear thunder and lightning flashing and crashing in a thunderstorm, is it always neatly rhythmic and always, you know, and always in a nice eight-second interval every time? Is that how thunderstorms work? 
right? They're very irregular and unpredictable, and they're crashing all over the place. So if you take the length of the lines and treat them as thunderclaps, because scripturally the voice of the Lord is always, pretty much always portrayed as thunder, you end up with something like this, and I'm going to hit the pulpit. So if you're asleep, you're about to be awake, right? With the different lines, just listen to what it sounds like as you read. So the voice of the Lord... You get that? If you take the voice of the Lord as a thunderclap, it almost sounds like a thunderstorm, right? With some close together and some far apart. And verse 5 just kind of rumbles and lingers for quite a while. I couldn't do that very well on the pulpit. I should have had a drum. I'll do, get a drum next time. Did you see what I mean? It's, the poem's written in a way that it sounds like what it's portraying. That's really cool. And I just wanted you to notice that. But I also want us to notice how it focuses us on the message. So let's look at the beginning the middle, and the end. The three parts that stick out in the rhythm of the poem just a little bit. So let's look at the first part first, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. Now let's think biblically and pull on this thread. Many waters. When is the first time that we see God hovering over many waters? When's the very beginning, hint, hint, of when we see God hovering over many waters? It's when he makes the heavens and the earth, right? Right at the beginning of the story. He's over many waters, like he's being portrayed here. And what is he doing in that story at the beginning of Genesis? Part of what he's doing is he's separating the waters, and he's making dry ground so he can make a spot, a garden, where he can dwell with man on earth for worship and blessing. That's what he's doing with the waters the first time we see him. And we think, well, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if there's something similar going on here as he's over the waters in this, sh- in this storm as it's building over the ocean and coming, plowing into the north end of the promised land. Does this have something to do with God separating waters again to make a place for his people to live with him, kind of like Psalms 27 was talking about? So skip some pages further forward. When do you see God interacting with large bodies of water next? Right? He's just, we're, we're maybe coming out of Egypt, right? We're coming to this large body of water, and the breath or the voice of the Lord blows on it, and it splits, and his people cross over on dry land, from the land of bondage to the land of life and blessing. As he saves his people, showing what his name means. He's heard them, he's seen them, he's remembered, he's come down, and he's delivered them from life to death, and they go through the many waters. From slavery to sin to blessing and life, so that they can. Do you remember what the key issue was in the Exodus? What wouldn't Pharaoh let them do? Worship. My people need to worship me. You've got to let them go, because that's what I made them for. And he wouldn't, and that didn't work out very well for him. So they're coming out of death to life so that they can worship. And you have to think, well, is Psalms 29 drawing on that? Is there something going on here about God judging evil? that is keeping his people in bondage and delivering them to freedom so they can have worship and blessing with him on earth in that garden he might be remaking. Right? This sounds like Psalms 28 a little bit. That's what's going on at the beginning. That's kind of an interesting thread. So let's go to the middle now, verse 5. The longest verse of this storm poem. This is the heart, the eye of the storm. It's most powerful here, so get a good grip on your pew. I don't want to see anybody blowing away like Mary Poppins. Ready? The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. 
That might feel a little underwhelming the first time you read it for the longest verse in the poem. When you read cedars like, read phrases like cedars of Lebanon, right, or a place named like Lebanon or another place like Syrian, you know what it's time to do when you're reading the text? You pull out your concordance. That's a Bible index of every word found in the Bible. Or you get your Bible program and right-click on it. And you look up those phrases, and you see where else they occur. Because the Bible's wanting you to cross-reference to other places where words like Lebanon and cedars and Syrian occur. So if we pull on the thread, cedars of Lebanon, the main phrase here, where does that go? And what does that move? In other places in Scripture, we talk about threads, if that analogy doesn't make sense. Sometimes we talk about the Bible as a tapestry, right? A beautiful rug telling one big picture of many threads. And one of the ways we learn about what the story of the Bible is, is we start pulling on threads and we see, oh, that actually comes up here and it comes up there and it comes up here and it moves other places. So let's pull on the threads of the seed of Lebanon, cedars of Lebanon, and see where it goes. And when we do that, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is cedars of Lebanon appear to show up in a number of other places that are really important. And they carry a lot of cargo. There's a lot of theology going on in the cedars of Lebanon. They aren't just random trees. Here's the bad news. There's so much going on with the cedars of Lebanon, I'm pretty sure we could do a separate sermon just on that phrase. And we're not going to do that this morning. We're just going to hit three highlights three three other texts that are particularly important that help us see what it is the psalmist is saying by having these trees be at the focal point of the coming or of the storm that's arrived in Psalms 29 so the first text is in 1st kings near and around chapter 8 by the way 1st kings is going to really matter next week Psalms 30 is going to talk to 1st kings very much so it's interesting it's coming up in the, in the, in the uh, chapter beforehand as well. First Kings, what are the cedars of Lebanon being used for in that book? Do you remember? What are they building out of them? They're building the temple. Right? These are the building materials of the temple. They're the, one of the primary construction tools or materials, sorry, for, the, for where God's going to live with his people on earth for worship and blessing. It's like a new little Garden of Eden that they're building in the temple. It's, a re, it's bringing us back again to what God intends in the garden. It's deliverance and deliverance from sin like happens in Exodus. goes on in the temple as the sacrifice atones for sin. Cedars are being used to build that place. That's the first spot these guys come up. A second important place I want to highlight is Ezekiel, one of the prophets. Chapter 17. In Ezekiel 17... God is judging his people because they've sinned against him and would not repent. And now he's sending them out of the land. He's sending them off into exile in Babylon. And as he removes them from his temple, his presence, as he removes them from the land of blessing and sends them into exile to learn to repent so that they can be his people, in a poetic passage in this chapter, Ezekiel 17, the cedars of Lebanon are being attacked again by a storm and he breaks off the top of one of them. And he moves it, and he replants it next to abundant water, think Psalms 1, where that new cedar, that top of the old cedar, regrows and becomes large and strong, replacing the others. And it actually becomes, and this is important, a shelter for all the nations as it's rebuilt. It's not just his people anymore that are sheltering under the cedars of Lebanon, which are the materials that the temple's made out of. It's everybody. And Jesus actually uses that text 
in one of his parables to talk about how the old temple is going to be swept away and a new one that he makes is going to be rebuilt and people from all the nations will be welcomed there. Now that's kind of interesting. Cargo that these trees are carrying as they're swaying in the wind. God's going to break one off and replant it and regrow it into something better and bigger that everybody participates in. All, not all peoples, but peoples from everywhere. In the third spot is Zechariah chapter 6 and 11, particularly where the voice of the Lord comes together with the rebuilding of the temple. And it is the voice of the Lord, same phrase is used here, that's actually rebuilding the temple. He's sending his spirit out to the four corners of the earth to gather men and women and boys and girls from the four corners of the earth, from every people, tribe, tongue, and language. And he's also appointing a new high priest whose name is Joshua. In Hebrew, Yeshua, right? It means Yahweh saves. In Greek, it's Jesus. In English, it's Jesus. He's appointing a new high priest who's also a king who's going to rebuild the temple. So Zechariah is bringing together the voice of the Lord in Psalms 29 with the cedars of Lebanon from its other context as well, together with the sending of the Spirit so that for the rebuilding of the temple and the bringing in of the nations, all done by this high priest named Yeshua. The cedars of Lebanon are used in all of those contexts and critical spots. So maybe at first it doesn't look like it's a big deal that the storm is just going to wipe out a bunch of trees and some hills that happen to be cedars. Until you pull on the thread and you see where it goes and the cargo it picks up. This storm is clearing away the old forest, right? Read the end of the psalm. It's clearing away the old trees. They're gone. And it's like Ezekiel 17. It's replanting them into something the nations can cut. So now look at the psalm. Look at verse 6. Why do you think Lebanon, who they're outside Israel, why do you think Syrian, they're outside Israel, are partying, jumping around, excited and full of joy? It's because now they can be included in the new thing that God is making. There's rejoicing going on in the nations as the storm goes through the promised land. Look at Psalms 114. You'll see the same kind of imagery being used in the same way. So there's a reason that this is the heart, the eye, the dead center of the storm of Psalms 29. And it seems to me that this storm relates directly to the main point of what the whole book is about of Psalms of the coming king and what the coming king is going to do. He's going to remove in judgment and he's going to rebuild for worship. So Psalms 28, don't sweep me away. And he hasn't because he's heard my cry and answered it. Blessed be the Lord. That's Psalms 28. See how this psalm fits right in between verses 5 and 6 of last week's? That's, verse, that's, that's the fifth voice of the Lord. The fourth? Fourth, right in the middle. Now let's look at the seventh and the last. That's in verse 9 as we look at the first, the middle, and the last because they're the longest, biggest lines. There's another call to worship, isn't there? I think that's really interesting. There's one call to worship at the beginning in the heavens as the angels are called to worship because of what the storm is about to do. And now at the end, there's another call to worship, except where is it this time? It's on earth. And so it is on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to pray a prayer that says just exactly that here in a little while together. It's one of the things God's people have been taught to pray by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Father, who art in heaven, may your name be holy. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And may all of those things now be on earth just as they are in heaven. And Psalms 29 is doing just that. There's a call to worship from heaven, and now it's being echoed from the earth, and it's because of what the storm in the middle has done. 
So I think we're not just seeing the end of the storm at the end of the psalm as it sort of dissipates and goes its way. We're catching a glimpse of the end of the actual story, capital S, right? The end of history itself. When the storm is done, it is on earth as it is in heaven. And the worship that was going on in heaven is now being recreated on earth because the storm, I think, has brought a new garden and new salvation and a new exodus where now there is glory in a new rebuilt temple. That's what's going on in the storm of Psalms 29. And so now let's put those threads together with Psalms 28, right? It was just one cry. Don't sweep me away from the wicked. I don't want to have the same fate as those for whom God is justly judging their sin. Like Psalms 1 and 2. David instead sings, no, I'm crying for mercy. Blessed be the Lord, then he says in verse 6, because he's heard my cry and he's answered me and given me shelter and saved me. And we say, now what is the difference? What happens between those two psalms? That's how we ended last week, those two lines, verses 5 and verses 6 of Psalms 28. And it appears to be the storm of Psalms 29, because the storm is doing both of the things that Psalms 28 talks about, right? It is sweeping away in judgment the old, and those who will not bow their knee to the Son, and it is renewing creation and saving those who have taken refuge in the Son and come to him in faith, like at the end of Psalms 2. The only thing, the only thing that makes any difference in David's fate in Psalms 28, the only thing that divides verse 5 from verse 6 is what the storm is teaching us. Take shelter in the Son now. Find shelter in the Son now. And you will be saved from the storm. It will not be the storm of judgment. It will be the storm of salvation when God finishes his work. And if you want to be sure that that's what the psalm is saying, look at the end in the last two verses. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with shalom, with peace. Now at the end of the storm, as it's dissipated and quiet is returning, God himself is now king. The son of David, son of God, of Psalms 1 and 2, is now on the throne. And he's reigning in judgment and in salvation, just like he reigned over the flood of Noah. The flood of Noah was both judgment on those who were not in right relationship with the man of grace and those who were in relationship with the man of grace and got into the ark and were saved. This is the just one thing of Psalms 27. There's nothing else I want. It's just to be with God. I have to take refuge from the storm and the sun for that to happen. There's just one cry I have. I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to be swept away. I'm going to take refuge in the sun and come to him by faith. And then Psalms 29 can happen. We have to have refuge. We have to take shelter while we can. When you start to hear the sirens go off, it's a little too late to find, get in your car and try to drive home. You have to find your shelter. You have to know where it is before the storm comes. So how do we take refuge in the sun? Remember how that happens for each person. Psalms teaches us. Psalms 1 and 2, the word of God, points us to the Son of God, in whom we find blessing if we take refuge by faith. So let's fast forward from Psalms. There's another storm in Scripture. If we keep reading a little later, there's another storm in the Promised Land. It's in Mark chapter 4. And this time it's not a thunderstorm. It's a hurricane. 
and it's on the Sea of Galilee. And there's a man there whose name in Hebrew is Joshua, or in Greek, Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves. And he's in the back of a boat asleep in the storm because he's quite certain it can't harm him or anyone who's with him because he's Lord of the storm, right? He's over it. But the people with him don't quite get that yet. And they think they're going to drown. And they're terrified. They're trying to save the boat. They can't save themselves. So they finally wake, last resort, right? Ask God for help. They finally wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? And he rebukes them for their lack of faith. Says, don't you know you're with me? How do you think you're ever going to perish when you're with me? And then he rebukes the storm. If you don't mind my paraphrasing it a little bit, this is pretty close to the sense, sit down and be quiet. And as Charles Spurgeon, I think, says in a sermon on this, the storm, which once was a raging lion, turns into a little kitten, curls up and goes to sleep on the shore. And his disciples ask the right question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's the right question. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? That's the same question Psalms 29 wants you to ask. The storm is designed to help you see you are in danger of being swept away with the wicked on your own if you don't find shelter. You need to ask, who is Jesus Christ? And come to him in faith and find refuge from the storm in him. It's the only way you'll be saved. When God comes to undo this, and recreate his new heavens and new earth for his people to be with him forever. That's what you want more than anything else. That's the missing puzzle piece in the hole in your heart, like we talked about in Psalms 27. The only way to get there is to take refuge in the Son. So this is our commission then, this week, from this text. It's going to be a little different. I've been having your commissions be in Psalms so far. I'm going to ask you to to be reading Mark and asking one question. Mark is a short book. If you read three chapters a day, you'll be done before the weekend. So open up the Gospel of Mark and read it with the same question the disciples asked. Who is this Jesus? If you're not yet a Christian and you don't yet believe in him, read asking, is Jesus Christ really the Son of God and my Savior? Who is this Jesus? And we would love to read it with you and and talk about it. If you're already in Christ, you need to remember who your Savior is too and the shelter he's given you from this shore-coming storm that will either be judgment or deliverance. So read Psalms again, ask, sorry, read Mark again asking, who is this Jesus to learn a little bit more about who your Savior is, to love him more, and to live more like him in the weeks to come. That's your commission from Psalms 29, the Psalm of the Storm. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge that you sit enthroned over the storm, over the flood. We acknowledge that you sit enthroned as king forever. We are grateful to be your servants. We are grateful to to know you as our Savior. If any of us here do not yet know you, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that your spirit would, would give them the ability to understand your word and what it says about who you are and how you save. And for those of us who are in Christ, would that you would give us strength to live worthily of this gospel by which we've been called and grant us, even in this world, shalom, peace. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.